All right, everybody, strap in. Welcome back to the Naked Security Podcast. Kim is enjoying some R&R this week, so it's just going to be Paul and I. My name is Doug Ameth, and to my physical left, 3,205 miles away, the great Paul Duckland. Paul, how do you do? I'm super duper. Thank you, Doug. And to our mutual convenience, we caught up with our daylight saving, thus aligning our time difference to its normal level. So no more, oh dear, was I an hour late for the meeting confusion. Oh, that's great, because that is a weird like four weeks between the US and the UK trying to schedule things. That try factoring Oz into the mix because they have yet other dates. And of course, the, the seasons are reversed. So there's this if you've ever had to do like 24-7 cover for things like threat response, it's really annoying because <laughs> most of the year it's very predictable. And then there are these bits where you have to remember, OK, we went forward, they went back, they did it a week ago. We're, um, so I just use UTC for everything now. Well, if you people thought that the Naked Security podcast was just about security, you were wrong because we're learning about time zones. And Paul, do you have some sort of recommendation for us? Ah, yes. Uh, this week. Estonia, Doug, which mm. has the problem that, you know, they have they have quite a funky language. I think it's sort of more like Finnish than anything else. So it's not like the rest of us. So I have no idea how to say it, but it's written Mangont. M-A-N-G, new word, O-N-T, Oscar, November, Tango. And Mang-ont. surprise, surprise, Mangont, fuzzy, detuned doom metal. Who would have thought? Is it good for programming? Of course. Excellent. I mean, there is music that's no good for programming. If there's a picture somewhere that shows a guitarist in front of a, like I've said, of a, a sea of orange amps or Matamp greens, you know you're in the right place. And speaking Great. of Matamp greens, did you know that Matamp used to make amps for orange? So they were not only competitors, they were also chums. Back in the heady days of British Valve Amp Engineering, and both companies hmm. still going, of course, although I believe Orange is owned by Gibson these days. Matamp is not. They make all the stuff by hand on demand. It's cool. You order a Matamp, it says allow 30 days, not for delivery, allow 30 days or more, because when we get your order, we'll start making it. <laughs> and they go and pick out the valves they're going to use, <laughs> cutting the wires and everything. It's very, very old school. What a time to be alive. Yeah. Okay, Mang Ant. My recommendation yeah. this week is uh, is a product. I was looking, so here, let's see if anyone else can uh, identify with this. I wanted a shop vac, you know, a wet dry vac. This is for like, you know, sawdust and stuff like that. Yeah, it's the thing I mean, that you it, if you suck up water, it will not set itself on fire and then electrocute you. In fact, it's designed to work with water if you so wish. Yep, and this is something that I would use maybe once a year. <laughs> spring give spring cleaning a new name. Yes, and so you 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 would need to buy you know the 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 bigger ones that hold a lot of debris are you know fifty plus dollars in the eighty dollar range, and the small ones you know I want to spend like thirty bucks on one. They're, they're tiny. They don't hold anything. So you can use it for, you know, a minute or two and then it's full. But there's this thing I found, which is great. It's called Buckethead. So every American, I don't know about over in the UK, but every American owns a five-gallon bucket. And this is just an attachment. The vacuum part sits on top of a standard five-gallon bucket. And it costs 25 bucks. And so you've got this inexpensive yet usable shop vac 
but the part that it empties into is your own five-gallon bucket. So the other 364 days a year, I can use the bucket for bucket stuff. And then the once a year I need to use it, I'll clear out the bucket, use it with the shop vac, with the bucket head, and then empty it out, clean it again, and put all the stuff back in. I kind of lost you at Buckethead because when you said Buckethead, I was thinking of Buckethead, the super famous, at least to me, uh, American instrumental rock guitarist. I did. Uh, I, I got some weird results back when I went Googling for Buckethead, and so that would explain it. So we've uh, let's move on to our, our headlines. We're going to talk today about an urgent Apple patch for a zero-day exploit. We're going to talk about two pretty severe open SSL bugs. And it looks like the PHP web language may have narrowly avoided a pretty serious backdoor supply chain style attack. But first, fun fact, the Bank of England's newly redesigned 50-pound banknote was recently unveiled again. It now features the face of computing pioneer Alan Turing. Paul, you've got a great article on Naked Security detailing all the great things Turing did. And I think it's arguably laughable to merely refer to him as just a computing pioneer, correct? Yes. You know, you think, uh, what do you think? So uh, Dunning and Kruger uh, are famous for their effect and uh, Hamming has his Hamming distance. But Turing, of course, is his, he's given his name to uh, Turing machines, universal computing devices, Turing tests, um, uh, uh, an objective way for how we might decide whether computers think and Turing patterns, which is you know the mathematical way of studying what I believe is called morphogenesis, which is what causes patterns to arise in nature. So we're talking about things like leopard spots, zebra stripes, uh, and funky stuff like that. So he was he was uh, he's given his name to. Uh, sort of standard and important things in all of those fields which is quite amazing and they're all uh, they're all given some little mention uh, on the new 50 pound note which I wish I could hold one up and show it to you but a it's a podcast and b for all, although it was unveiled on the 23rd of March what was unveiled is it will actually hit the banks on the 23rd of June exactly three months later so you're getting your warning so we haven't actually got them yet, but we do now know exactly what they're going to look like. Yeah, and it looks like there's some cool there's some cool little details on the note as well, right? That kind of like t- tip of the cap to some of the stuff that he's accomplished. Yeah, absolutely. The, there was the, the the bomb, which was a a mechanical computer designed for cryptographic cracking during the Second World War. There's the, the Pilot Ace, which is one of Britain's first electronic digital computers that was built after the war. The ones they built during the war were never admitted to, so they never got no one ever got credit for them. They were destroyed after the war. But he was instrumental in designing and building this, you know, this brand new thing. Uh, there's his birthday in binary on a tape, which of course is a nod to the Turing machine which is a theoretical computing device that uses a, a, a tape as its input. There's a little sunflower, which is one of the anti-counterfeiting marks, which is a nod to his work on, you know, why patterns, what the mathematics of patterns appearing in nature, um, all sorts of cool stuff like that. It's nice to have a new scientist. He beat out some serious competition as well. So, there, you know, there were 11 other, there was a short list of 12 and he was the winner. But some of the others include some amazing pioneers like Rosalind Franklin, who should have won a Nobel Prize but didn't. She was the X-ray crystallographer who basically figured out that the helix structure, double helix structure of DNA by actually working out what DNA molecules look like. 
Mary Anning. Apparently there was just a film about her. She was a famous paleontologist, I think, from the 19th century. Uh, you know, overlooked by the establishment because, you know, well, A, she was a woman, and B, she never went to university. Just, you know, village girl, as it were. And her dad died when she was young, and she made a living digging up fossils on what's now called the Jurassic Coast and became, like, absolute leading authority on paleontology. And so Turing beat out all of those. So this, uh, just the short list is, is, is fun enough. But uh, I, the thing is, in the UK, nobody really bothers with £50 notes. And a lot of shops, like, they look, they look funny if you were to take one in. They go, oh, no, we don't take those, because obviously that's what would be get counterfeited. Um, so strangely, it's a strange way to honour Turing. But it is the biggest and the most valuable note, so maybe that's what they had in mind. Well, there's a very detailed write-up, and you can, you can take a look at some of the look at the note itself and some of the cool features on it up on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Let's talk about Apple. They just pushed out an emergency one-bug security update for mobile devices, they including did. iPhones, iPads, and Apple Watches. All versions of our supported Apple devices are affected. So if you have iOS 12 for older iPads and iPhones, then you need 12.5.2. If you have newer iPads and iPhones, 14.4.2. And if you have watchOS, you and the other person who has it need (laughs) 7.3.3. And it was what is known as a universal cross-site scripting bug in WebKit, which is the core of Apple's uh, mandatory web rendering engine for iDevices uh, that was apparently actively being exploited in the wild. Uh, it seems that that's how they found out about it. So when people go and download the Chrome browser for their iPhone, it's it's you've got the features of Chrome that you like. You can sync your bookmarks and stuff like that. But the actual rendering engine, all these other third-party browsers must use Apple's WebKit. That's correct. So Firefox, which uses the Mozilla engine on all other platforms, will be the Firefox outside with WebKit as its core. The other thing to remember about WebKit is it is a kind of web page display engine, if not a fully featured browser on its own. That was my next question. So this extends beyond Safari. This could be in the App Store. This could be in inside in frames that are served up inside apps. This this affects a lot of things out beyond just mobile Safari. Potentially, yes, it does. Because obviously Safari has WebKit at its core. So if there's a bug in WebKit, that be- bug basically percolates into Safari. And as you said, on the iPhone, by Apple's rules, if it's in the App Store then it has to have WebKit inside if it's a browser. But like you say, it's also possible that if you have an app that just, you know, maybe pops up a little web window because actually that's a very convenient way of doing a help file. You know, instead of writing your own super fancy rich text displayer, just have some HTML and let WebKit display it. Then you're actually using the rendering engine. So quite frequently bugs in WebKit don't just get reflected in your full-powered browsers. They may actually end up being exploitable inside any and all apps that just happen to have anywhere that a web page appears. And that could be something like, you know, the About screen that pops up. A lot of apps just say, oh, well, we want something that's cute. It's got a logo in it and maybe a little bit of animation. So rather than write our own, we'll just do it using WebKit with a little bit of static HTML that we feed into it. So WebKit is in quite a lot of places where you might not expect it. But I imagine if you were a crook, then it would be via a browser 
that would be your main way of exploiting this particular bug? So the question on everyone's mind, of course, what is the difference between cross-site scripting and universal cross-site scripting? Cross-site scripting, very simply explained, is where through some error in security checking, website X is able to access the web data, things like cookies, that belong to website Y. And you can see why that would be an awful idea, that if I can trick your site into including my script, then my script that you did not authorize can read things like data about your user currently logged in, even maybe read authentication tokens and therefore get access to somebody else's session. And the browser is supposed to implement what's called the same origin policy, which says that if you've got a, a cookie or local web data that was stored for domain, say, example.com, then only content and scripts from example.com is allowed to see that data. It's a very, very important part of web security. So a cross-site script is where that breaks down. And usually that means somebody's found a bug in website Y that means that they can use their own script to extract data relevant to people visiting website Y. So that's cross-site scripting. Unfortunately, universal cross-site scripting... I'm guessing the word universal is uh, yeah, a lot more ominous... It in is. Case. It means that the bug is inside your browser. So it means you don't need to find a website that's made a security blunder. What you do is you trick the browser into allowing content or scripts from site X to access web data from site Y. So even if website Y has done everything correctly, it's the browser that lets you down, not the server at site Y. So in theory, when you have a universal cross-site scripting hole, as you say, it's universal. It means you're tricking the browser into violating its own rules about who's allowed to see what. So at worst, you can imagine it means that somebody could rob your authentication token. They're effectively logged in as you. They could see what's in your shopping cart. They could read your personal profile data. Now, I don't know. We don't know what the crooks who were abusing this hole were doing with it, but uh it's certainly worth patching because if you don't, then not only do you have the security hole, somebody out there who does not have your interests at heart already knows how to abuse it. It doesn't really matter what they're abusing it for. It seems that they at least know how to do that. Okay, so if you have an Apple device of mobile origin that... Uh, it doesn't matter how old it is, you should go and update it. It's, it's yes. pretty, this, this applies to just about everything. And just remember, we've spoken about this on the podcast before, and I'm sorry to bring this news if it's not what you want to hear, but it is how it is. There is no iOS 13. Newer iPhones get iOS 14.4.2 because the upgrade for iOS 13 is iOS 14. Older iPhones, I think 6 Plus and earlier, that are still officially supported by Apple, get 12.5.2. So if you're still on iOS 13, you are way out of date from a security point of view. And this is one of only a few serious security holes that you need to worry about. So even if you don't like the new features in iOS 14, even if you dearly want to cling to iOS 13, I do urge you not to do so because you have a whole load of gaping holes in your device, including ones that we know crooks already know about. Apple devices get urgent patch for zero-day exploit. Update now. That article is on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. It is that time we're going to talk about technology etymology, and the word we're going to talk about today is analog. 
In technology, we generally best understand the term analog as a counterweight to digital. It was first used in computing language back in 1946 to describe a type of continuous signal. In other words, if you transmit analog audio, the actual audio itself is simply an analogous electrical signal. Digital audio, on the other hand, is encoded into data on one end and decoded back into audio on the other. So when you talk about analog, you actually do mean an analog. It is the actual audio as a signal. Continuously variable without the risk of sampling craziness that you get with digital sampling if you don't sample fast enough. Precisely. We're going to talk about, so this is a serious security article, which means that you're going to get some, it's a little technical and you're going to learn some things. And this is important because this is, Paul, this is a pretty, pretty severe uh, couple of crypto bugs found in OpenSSL, which is a popular cryptography technology. It is indeed. Uh, it's perhaps the best known and widely used open source crypto library, I, I suspect. There are several others, but even on Windows and Mac, which have their own built-in TLS or HTTPS or secure encryption transport underlying libraries, uh, you will find software that uses OpenSSL, particularly if it intends to be portable. That way the code is exactly the same on Linux, Windows, and Mac. So uh, even if you're using Windows where you expect, oh, they'll just use the Microsoft crypto libraries because they're built in and they're there already, some, some software may use OpenSSL instead or as well as the built-in stuff. So this could apply to you if in doubt uh, ask the person who made the software. Could this also apply to, a, a lot of people may or may not know this, a lot of websites you go to are hosted on Linux servers. Would this affect Linux servers host, hosting websites that could that you could access, or is this not? Yes, I should have made it clear that when I talk about using OpenSSL, that's not just for client software like browsers or automatic updating tools, uh, you know, or command line downloading facilities, utilities, or anything like that. It's also can be the other end of the equation, perhaps even more importantly, um, because one of these bugs is very critical for people who run servers, because a lot of servers, particularly if they're running on Linux, where there isn't a standardized built-in crypto library, you may very well be have a web server that uses OpenSSL to provide the HTTPS connections that your visitors are making. And unfortunately, the first of these bugs means that it's possible that someone who's just visiting your website with an innocent looking request, no obvious malware in the request, could actually do some shenanigans that cause your server to crash. And of course, probably reboot and it'll come back up and then they would visit again and it would crash again and so on. You know, the, the, the standard problem that you get when there's a denial of service bug that could affect your servers. Even if you've got 20 different servers for load balancing, if any of them can be knocked off the air at any time by some miscreant or cyber criminal, then, you know, that could put your online presence at great risk. Okay, so that's the first one. Crash can be provoked when connecting to a vulnerable server. Yes, that's to do with what's called TLS renegotiation. TLS, transport layer security, that's the thing that puts a padlock in your address bar on your browser. And basically, the idea is that you obviously set up the encryption before you start transmitting any data. And so there's a, a sort of session negotiation 
phase that happens right at the beginning. The client connects to the server. The server, they do a little cryptographic dance, as you might call it, and they agree on the cryptographic settings they're going to use, and off they go from then on, they encrypt. And in TLS 1.2, there's a thing called session renegotiation. Now, it's very complicated and considered by many people error-prone, which this bug may convince you was a good way of thinking about it. So in the latest incarnation of TLS, TLS 1.3, there is no renegotiation because, it, as I say, it's just felt to be an unnecessary complication prone to causing bugs in software. And what happened in OpenSSL is the client, so somebody connecting to you, can suddenly say, oh, I want to renegotiate. So what you do is you do your cryptographic dance again. The idea is you may want to improve security or change a few settings in an innocent way. And what happens in this bug is it turns out that if the client says, I'd like to renegotiate, and the server says, OK, then if the client presents its new cryptographic settings, but it deliberately leaves out data that it did provide the first time, the server will go looking for that data that wasn't provided this time, because, hey, it must be important, and it will go trying to read this non-existent data from a non-existent memory location, bang, and your server process, whatever it is, will crash. So uh, that is the problem. And you can fix it either by patching. So just get open SSL 1.1.1K, which fixes this problem. Or if you can't update yet, you can turn off support for TLS renegotiation at the server side. That means that some clients may not be able to connect if they insist on doing TLS renegotiation. But given that it's considered such a bad idea that it was dropped from the protocol, you're probably not <laughs> going to lose out much. Yeah. Okay, so that's bad. But this next one, vulnerable client can be tricked into accepting a bogus TLS certificate. That <laughs> yes. sounds even worse. Sort of. Yes, in a way, it's sort of more abstruse, and apparently it's rather harder to get all the conditions to line up perfectly. But in a way, as bad as completely crashing someone's server so they can't sell any goods online anymore, for example, sounds, in a way, you can think that a server that has a security problem that causes it to stop working is actually better than one that has a security problem, doesn't realise it, and carries on working, giving you a false sense of security. And I just rather like this bug because it was there's a terrible <laughs> irony in the middle of it. There's a there's a there's a special option you can set in OpenSSL. I'll read it out in full. It's X509 underscore V underscore flag underscore X509 underscore strict. So it's orotund as well as complicated sounding. Uh, we'll just call it strict mode. And the idea is what you're saying is when the connection's happening, when I'm making the connection, do some super extra checks to make sure that the server, so this is typically for a client connecting to a server, make sh double, triple, quadruple sure that the server is not trying to trick me, e.g. by giving me a, a fake certificate that claims to represent a site that it's not entitled to. So it's actually supposed to make you more secure. Um, unfortunately, what happens is when one of these extra checks is done, which is if the server happens to send out a specific user-specific cryptographic algorithm for its web security certificate, it just so happens if it uses elliptic curve cryptography, and you're doing these strict checks, and there is nothing wrong with the cryptographic settings then the fact that that test passes 
overwrites any previous detection that OpenSSL did that had found that the certificate was fake. So somebody wants to entice you to a server. In theory, it's not quite as easy as I'm making it sound, but somebody can entice you to their server. And if they know that you're using a client that has strict checking on, they just feed you a fake web certificate that isn't properly signed, as long as it's in a certain format, and your client will go, right, let me check, is this certificate, is this genuine? Does it really look like it belongs to example.com from someone who is authorized to represent example.com? No, it doesn't. Fake certificate, I'm not accepting it. But it doesn't end the connection immediately. It says, oh, let me do the extra checks. Oh, but <laughs> cryptographically, it's beautifully formatted and nicely painted and properly colored in. So I will accept it after all, because <laughs> it only uses a single variable to remember the error condition. And it sets that error condition to bad when it finds the certificate error. And then it overwrites the bad setting with good when it finds that the cryptographic parameters were right. Yeah, does not seem, it doesn't seem very strict. <laughs> no, it's exactly the opposite of strict. And if you look at the code, you get the impression that, you know, this is code that's evolved and extended and become quite enormous over time. The, the, the code in OpenSSL to deal with the, the single code file that's one of the biggest in the entire distribution is the part that deals with uh you know tls https web certificate verification and validation because that's one of the most important things of tls so it's not surprising with trying to add more and more and more and more and more checks into it that along the way someone's added in some code that it looks as though it's going to add security but in fact it doesn't and because this strict mode is not default you can and because when you're testing it you're probably testing that it correctly fails in both cases uh, you can see why this strict checking that makes things less strict uh, could have evaded testing and detection until now but now it is known uh, you can either in your TLS client avoid using strict mode um, if you turn it off temporarily, it isn't the default. So obviously it's not considered that important or simply upgrade. That is serious security. OpenSSL fixes two high severity crypto bugs. Uh, NakedSecurity.Sophos.com. Now we'll talk about my favorite web language, PHP, which narrowly avoided a backdoor supply chain attack. Well, I suppose technically you could argue that this, let's call it a supply chain attack, was indeed successful. Somebody... And the suspicion that the PHP team now has is that these crooks did not get somebody's password. They actually were able to find some kind of bug or exploit some problem on their source code control server. They use Git. Uh, many of our listeners will have heard of it. It's a popular source code control system. It's the one that Linux uses and many other people use it. It's also the one famously supported by uh, Microsoft's GitHub uh, service. And so they have this Git server where they keep the PHP code. And it seems that someone exploited some kind of misconfiguration or bug on the PHP team server. And they snuck in some extra few lines of code into a C file called zlib.c, which deals with uh, web content compression, which is very commonly used these days. And it's a very nasty little hole. Basically, what it does is if you've got a web page that's going to sort of compress itself before it gets sent out using PHP. 
at the start of the compression well you probably wouldn't go looking right because it doesn't appear to affect the actual content it's just change transcoding something that's already there what happens is this code it has a peek at the headers from the incoming request it looks for a header called user agent right, two t's not user mm. agent one t like you would expect and yep. if that string matches a certain format, starts with some specific characters, it's actually, I think it's a, a name drop. It's the name of a company that's quite famous for buying exploits for its own use. Uh, if it has that magic marker in that header, in the incoming request, it takes the rest of the user agent header and runs it as a command. So it's basically a kind of web shell built right into PHP itself. The, so they did get it into the code base briefly. In fact, twice, apparently. They got it in, the guys took it out, the people put it back, and then they got it out forever. So it was only in the code on their Git server, I believe, for a few hours. And, of course, that means it was never in any official releases or anything like that. So the good news is it will be very unlikely that anyone would have decided, I know, I'm going to set up a brand-new web server in production, live on the internet and i'm going to download the not yet released pure development bleeding edge version of psp compile it and use it immediately and i'm going to do it just during the few, for few hours that that bug was there so you'd hope that nobody got this and it's fairly easy to check but it is rather worrying when this happens that clearly the the idea was a to make a point about about supply chain bugs and b to leave one in there that basically would have given a crook essentially open slather remote code execution, generic remote code execution control on your server. Send in a web request and just add the commands you want to run in a special header and sit back and wait. Oh my God, yeah. There, it, there, are, <laughs> there are lots and lots and lots of PHP-based sites out there. This could have been really bad. Particularly if someone's, hey, there's a new version. So presumably what the crooks were hoping, either they just wanted to make a splash and they did it to like just to, to kind of make the news, or they were hoping nobody would notice it would get built into a future version of PHP, go yeah. unnoticed, and people go, oh, there's a new version out which fixes some, adds some new features, fixes some important security problems, introduces this secret one, recompile their own PHP, apply it to their web server, and then their web server would be open. And, you know, a crook could easily find out whether you had this bug simply by probing your server with, you know, a string that does an innocent command that just indicates that it ran correctly. Yeah. Uh, you know, so that the crooks would have an easy way without doing any kind of weird port scanning. They just visit our web server, stick this secret request in there and see what happens. And if they get a positive sign, then put it on the list of let's come back later for more. But they headed it off at the pass, which is good news. And they have announced that with hindsight, given that they were using Microsoft GitHub as a sort of mirror for their official code repository and given that it was a huge extra effort to run their own git server that they didn't really need to do they're going to shift to github as their their sort of the main one true source of stuff and i guess they figured that whether you love or hate microsoft microsoft's job is to look after the github git servers whereas the php team it's an open source unpaid team who are there to look after php 
So that's the solution that they've got. And they have admitted that they're going to go carefully through their code base to make sure that they were, while the crooks were there, to make sure that there were no other untoward changes that they haven't noticed. But it looks at the moment as though, phew, so much water under the bridge, stand down from Blue Alert. So when we say, I don't know if we know this, but when we say that the changes were noticed, was this a human that noticed them or is this some sort of automated process that caught it? I presume that the committers, the people who look after the code, had a look and said, oh, look at that change. Uh, hang on. and Because obviously to, to, try and, to try and make these look uh, less controversial than they were, the crooks actually used the name of two key players in the PHP world, um, you know, one of the leading committers and one of, and, and the guy who invented PHP, and they put their names into the commit tags, and they mm -hmm. just put fix small typo or fix yeah. typo as the name, as though, you know, and you wow. kind of think, oh, well, I spelt the word referrer wrongly or something like that. Mm -hmm. So they're obviously just hoping that they would slip through under the radar, and they yeah. did not, which is good. It means somebody went, there's a commit in my name, I never made those changes revert immediately. So it does prove that if you keep your eyes open, you can head off a lot of trouble. Not to put too fine a point upon it. It'll be interesting to see once once they comb through the rest of the code if they find anything, but that was... Um, you, you imagine that if the crooks had to go to this length to insert these changes by using a fake commit into the Git system, that you imagine if they had a lower level way of doing it, they would have used that and they wouldn't have done this so noticeably. Uh, and if they did have a lower level way of doing it, then the good news is the crooks made a bit of a blunder by tipping everyone off by doing it at the high level as well. So it looks as though the good guys will win in the end. Okay, PHP web language narrowly avoids backdoor supply chain attack. Fascinating story. Uh, NakedSecurity.Sophos.com. Almost an oh no, but now we've, we've got a real oh no to deal with. Paul, let's talk about uh, this one tripped you up a little bit so we can get into this. Reddit user Jim Longbow writes about a decade and a half ago. Does anyone go in with a regular name on Reddit or do you have to have a wacky name? This guy's got to like... be Jim. I, I figure this guy is descended from um, your neck of the woods, from uh, Robin Hood's band of merry men, and he's Jim Longbow. I think that the, the Longbowman came a little bit before that. Think you'll find, okay. but uh, well, he's that's got to be his, you know, his great, 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 great grandfather. So Reddit user Jim Longbow writes about a decade and a half ago, the company I worked for sold some very niche software for pre-press agencies that ran on Solaris, and all of us technicians were supposed to support it. So Windows focused me was given a training together with some of my colleagues who actually knew their way around Unix, and saying I understood half of the administrative side of that application would have been overstating things a bit. I managed to follow the training well enough, though, until they discussed the account structure. Admin? Okay. I know that one. User? Yep. Windows has that one as well. But, excuse me, what is a demouser? Thinking it must be some Unix thing about only accepting the keyboard input instead of the mouse or something. And the trainer said, what? Yeah, it's for the hardcore people who, who, uh, who want keyboard shortcuts and refuse even to plug in a mouse, let alone use one. Exactly. I need the demouser. It says right there, admin, user, demouser. Or maybe, you know, if your mouse overheats and you need to leave it outside for a while to cool down. Exactly. That's the demouser. Yeah. And after a moment of shocked silence, the laughter started. And I'm still getting teased by my now former colleagues about that one. Of course, 
you were to write out demouser, it spells something different. Demo user. Admin user <laughs> demouser. I can't believe that one because when Kimberly sent that to us saying, hey, what do you think of this? Uh, what do you think of this story? I read it. And when I got to the end, I thought, oh, obviously you sent me the wrong link. Like they haven't finished the story. They'd got to the to the demouser and then everyone's laughing. But no one's explained what actually happened in the end. And I was reading it and reading it. And I was about literally moving my eyes back to another part of my screen to send an email saying, <laughs> I don't get it. And then I looked back and out of the corner of my eye, I saw the word user. And when I glanced back at it, I could no longer see the word demouser. I could only see demo user. And then the penny, the shilling, the florin, the crown, the sovereign, the guinea, a whole pieces of eight came raining down on me as the coins dropped. And I thought it was very funny. Just goes to show how careful you have to be when you uh, when you choose verbiage and how easily and quite reasonably people might be confused. I think I might change my username to demouser now. I think you should. Yeah. Confuse myself, though. (laughs) (laughs) All right. If you liked that, oh, no, or you want to send in your own, hit us up, nakedsecurity.sophos.com. You can leave us an anonymous comment on any one of the articles. You can email us at tips at sophos.com. You can find Kimberly on Reddit. Oh, no, it's Kim on Reddit. That's her username. You can also connect with us on any of our social networks at Naked Security. We'd love if you would leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. That would really be helping us out. I'm Doug Ameth. On behalf of Paul Ducklin, until next time, stay stay secure. I kind of lost you at Buckethead.